Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. Glad to have you with us today. If you're new to the How Humans Work podcast, thank you for dropping into this episode and a big welcome to you. If you are a regular listener, I really appreciate your support. It means a lot to share my passions and have people listen in and resonate with them. Everyone is invited to help keep this a listener-sponsored podcast. Details about how you can contribute are at the end of the show and on my website, howhumanswork.us forward slash podcast. Supporting the show at any level keeps the show focused on the guests and the conversation. You can help make that happen. Today's guest is Dr. Kelly Starrett from The Ready State. I met with Kelly a couple of weeks ago at the Ready State headquarters. So you'll hear a little bit of the echo of the big fitness and film studio where he and his co-founder and wife, Juliet, produced some really important and valuable content around fitness mobilization and how we can all better inhabit our human form with aplomb. Kelly is a coach, physical therapist, author, and speaker. And he and his wife, as I mentioned, co-founded the Ready State, formerly known as the Mobility Wad back in 2008. Dr. Start has helped revolutionize the field of performance therapy and self-care. You can learn more about Kelly at his website, thereadystate.com, or any of his social channels with the handle at the Ready State. Honestly, I went in this conversation thinking I was headed into a deep dive about how stress works in the fabric of the body, how we can load it, and how we can mobilize to help it. Yes, we touched on all that, but it became so much more. This episode is a bounty of thought and perspective that Kelly brought. It's really hard for me to summarize. The best I could do is say it was a fascinating conversation about stress, fitness, and society. I'd invite you to pay particular attention to the focus on ancestral health behaviors underlying everything because it ties into Kelly and Juliet's forthcoming book, Built to Move, coming out this April. Thank you again for being here, listening to the show today. I hope you enjoy it. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Kelly, for being on the podcast. Kelly Starr, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm really glad to have you on the show nice today. Nice to see you again, my friend. It's really good to be with you. Well, it's nice to see you when I'm not being... Uh subsumed by chronic hiccups. I bet. Did you tell everyone what, what happened, how we got to know each other? No, I didn't. Nope. I found you uh, as a recommendation because somehow during the beginning of the pandemic when we were fighting the gym and fighting the Presidio and we had this existential crisis with this baby of mine of 16 years, I burned a hole in my stomach. I was only drinking coffee and La Croix and then <laughs> stress. <laughs> and then, and I was fine. I'm totally fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. It's all fine. That was my coping strategy. It is my my strategy I developed early on when with some weird family dynamics. I'd just be like, oh, let's go to sleep. I'll just put this door down over my heart and manage. I'll dissociate and do what needs to be done. Meanwhile, I'd burned a hole in my stomach and started this little hiccup thing that lasted for about 13 days. That was so brutal for you. 13 days of hiccups, everybody. Unstoppable hiccups. Yeah, it was only like four or six a minute. I lost a lot of weight. We call it trauma <laughs> trim in our family. I'm like, oh, you want to lose weight fast? Here, go through a divorce. Have something horrible happen to your health or you're super stressed. Yeah. Trauma trim. 
Yeah. TM. Not recommended. No. And uh, what's really great is, you know, I tried a lot of things, but you really helped me uh, get out of that sympathetic drive. Man, I was so yeah just you know in fight or flight for yeah. i didn't sleep i you know every four to six seconds i was being attacked i'd go you know if you ever have those hiccups where you can't breathe remember i would go like sometimes i would have a 20 second hiccup where yeah. i would have spasm in the diaphragm and i wouldn't take a breath for 10 to 15 seconds i mean 20 seconds i would just be like well i'm gonna eventually gonna breathe or i'm gonna black out and breathe so it'll be fine yeah <laughs> i mean that's really stressful for the body right <laughs> Like, like we know that uh, sleep apnea, when you stop breathing, so like you're having basically waking sleep apnea where yeah, the body is like cycling into it. But, you know, you're starting to talk and dive into something here. And I'm really interested in the modality you're talking about of being in fight or flight mm. and the, the drive you have. And I imagine as someone who trains hard, really oriented towards fitness, that might be an edge for you in some way of, of having a, a strong drive and where the limits of that are. And one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, how did fight or flight aspect of the body of the stress response line up to a place where you had a downside to it? Yeah. One of the things that I'm almost, I'm turning 49 in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I now have enough perspective on my, mm -hmm. my childish boy self to recognize and appreciate that the things that got me here are benefits. My secret weapon is that I can handle a freakish amount of stress, that I can dissociate, put down whatever anxiety, and then go do the thing. And that was from being a world-class paddler, paddling class five, starting businesses, taking risks, all of those things. My child is in the NICU. We still have these businesses. Here we go. How are we going to manage this? That same strategy, though, you cannot hide from the pieces that make that work. In this situation, you know, I was drinking way too much coffee. I probably engaged in some behaviors that didn't acknowledge the stress, right? And what I want people to hear is that you heard about some kind of crazy trauma pandemic. And look, we came out intact. My family's intact. Like, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't have death. There's a whole, it's an order of magnitude, more gnarly things that could have happened to us. But your brain doesn't recognize whether your stress or my stress is bigger. It's just the stress on the system. That's right. And it's relative stress. And so, you know, one of the things that we want people to try to do and, and appreciate is we use sport as a model for understanding ourselves and training as a model for understanding ourselves. Uh, look at it this way. Like I heard this this weekend, this guy was talking about how he uses fighting and real intense fighting with knives or simulated guns where you, you end up shooting after you lose or, or win a fight. He says, look, this isn't a fight, but I can guarantee an honest experience. And I think that's what we should be doing with training is sort of always running. A, it's, a, it's a really controlled test environment where I get to see how did you manage your sleep? How did you manage nutrition? How did you manage your warm up and cool down? I make this hypothesis and we theoretically have this small existential crisis every day. The reason that I, and that's how I've come to understand sort of how humans interact, how we can understand ourselves and know ourselves. Crisis and observation. I mean, Dune 101, right? Put your hand in the box. We're going to watch how you, what happens when you, your hand is in the box. And are you, did you freak out or not? And here I was keeping my hand in the box and my whole arm was burning. And I was like, it's fine. I can just, I can keep my hand in the box longer than you can, you know? Uh -huh. So one of the reasons that I'm such a fan of sport or people doing something that makes them uncomfortable is every once in a while, it really forces you to take stock of what are the core behaviors? Are you eating correctly? 
Are you eating fruits and vegetables? Do you eat protein? Do you sleep? Do you drink hydration? Uh-huh. And sometimes if there's a big event, then we can one, we can organize our environment and our behaviors to, to as a truth ter- serum or truth test to see how we're doing to handle that controlled existential crisis. And here I was living this existential crisis, but not recognizing that some of my lifestyle behaviors weren't going. And I'm an expert at recovery and adaptation. I have a yeah. sauna. I have like, you know, I know, but uh, the, some of the nutritional pieces or some of those stress pieces, you know, I, I think that night when my hiccup started, I also had a drink, you know, I don't really drink, but I had a drink and uh-huh. it was so good. And lo and behold, let me just add another stressor to the system. And that yeah. was enough to start triggering. That's interesting. One of the things you're starting to talk about that I think is interesting is creating a synthetic environment or a simulation for us to experience who we are under stress. Yeah. Training. Yeah. It's called practice. Called a practice. You call it a movement practice. Sure. You, or just practice. How, how do you know how, you know, smooth seas don't make good sailors. And uh, I see a lot of people who are like, I'm the best. This is the best. I'm like, well, let's go find out. And how does that go in that 5k run? Or how did you handle this sick child or this divorce? So there's two things in there for me. One, I have a a sincere question around what kind of stress loads do we want to place on ourselves Mm. given mismatch, which I think you probably understand the concept of mismatch. Yeah. Yeah. So given mismatch in in the culture where we're living in all sorts of situations or conditions that we're not naturally evolved for, including a real torque in the nature of stress, how stress works in our environment. We're not an ancestral environment. So, you know, we need playgrounds or simulation spaces where we can actually come to know ourselves through at no, least no, no, a no. physical stress. I do fake exercise to support muscles that I don't need in my real life. Is that what you mean? <laughs> I do fake work to have muscles that I'm never going to use on my computer. It's like, it's so you're hundred percent right. <laughs> That's a really funny idea. I like that. You're, um, you know, the, the key here is the human being needs input. It needs stress. So let's, let's define what that is. Yeah. At the cellular level of how your tissues work, it's mechanotransduction, which means you have to have physical input into the tissue in order for that tissue to express itself at a genetic level. So if you want to have a tendon, guess what you have to do to have a strong tendon? You have to load it. Eccentrically, concentrically, you have to do all the things that a tendon, if you want to have strong plantar fascia, you better walk a lot. So at some point we have to say some stress is required for the system right? Hormesis. I have to expose you over and over and over again. In fact, I call that, I think they call it anti-fragility. The idea is you're actually anti-fragile that you, you become more robust once you've been stressed and, and adapt. And for people who aren't thinking these terms, when we exercise, what we're really doing is making you adding a stressor and exposing you to some kind of thing that disrupts your homeostasis. Your body has an adaptation response and you end up with a more robust side. That means you could have been fitter, you could have been stronger. You could be more mentally agile. You could change your aerobic capacity. But ultimately, that initial stressor makes you weaker. So the magic here is in the dose, right? The dose is the, the cure and the poison. Obviously, it varies from person to person. But generally, in terms of first principles thinking, what kind of doses of load do you think we need in our bodies, given the fact that, you know, a lot of the physical work has been taken out of our daily living? Well, so what what's interesting about what you're hypothesizing or, or, or postulating here is that we have to now be conscious about behaviors and loading and practice and movement in ways that we haven't before. 
So if you work on a farm, I'm like, you're set. That's <laughs> you know, right. You're just yeah. really like plenty of loading. Or even some of the contractors I know. Oh, oh, 100%. Strong, fit. Oh, yeah. yeah. On yeah. your feet all day long. So what we then have to start asking is, well, are you doing the things that your body needs? So we are now clever enough to say, like, let me give you an example. Seven hours of sleep is our base minimum for threat. Like if you're under seven, you are now in survival mode. And that, and that means you may need to be asleep for air in bed for eight hours in order to get seven hours. Cause we've learned that 30 minutes to 60 minutes of sleep disruption is normal. But if you want to change your body composition, if you want to learn, if you want to, you're a child or growing, you're trying to learn a new skill, you're trying to get stronger. Eight is our minimum. And we found that, you know, yes, you can get by in four hours of sleep, have a baby. Let me know how that goes. Go through a stressful time in your life. You're robust enough to handle that. But generally, we're confusing survival with how do I do better? How do I take advantage of all of the machinery, all of the, the psycho-emotional capacity that my brain has for learning, for dealing, for interpreting? So what you're seeing then is we can start to ask fundamentally, well, what else? What else? Well, did you take your hip through a full range of motion today? Did you walk enough to actually decongest your tissues and accumulate enough non-exercise activity that you fell asleep in the night? What we find is that we're seeing these type one errors, these foundational errors in some of our key behaviors. You didn't eat enough fruits and vegetables. You didn't feed your gut flora. You didn't have enough protein. Your protein signal is down. You didn't walk. You didn't sleep. You didn't drink water. And we're arguing about what color rope you should take up the Everest route. And meanwhile, I'm like, hey, we're not at base camp yet. Let's get to base camp. <laughs> Ultimately, what we are trying to do is transform society, transform community with our understanding of high performance, because that's our laboratory where we can test, retest, share, test, retest, iterate, create vulnerability options, and then say to people, here is what is essential. And then, and then we can ask the next question, what do you want to do with your body? You know, what's what you, know, you want to change your body composition? Cool. That's, that's into it. I mean, but it's so confusing for people because we've seen fitness and health become entertainment. We've seen nutrition become entertainment. You know, look at the liver King, look at what's out in the world, not throwing shade on anyone, but the average person is like, Hey, I just want to not be look so bad. And I want to feel sexy for my partner. And I want to feel good with my kids when I'm 50 and I don't want my feet to hurt when I go walk. I mean, you know, it, the bar is low in terms of, you know, what people really want for themselves. Not, I want to smash my PR in this Olympic event in the Olympics. That's, that's a very, very, you know, outlier event. So when it comes to first principles around what kind of ways we should be loading our body and getting it, say a base camp, everybody's going to be in a different place or where they're at in relationship to base camp. But first principles, the kind of stress we want in our body um, in, in terms of how you see it. Yeah. Yeah. And what you realize is maybe the Western approach isn't a great place to start, right? This double blind, you know, controlled study that shows me that, you know, if I eat this glutathione, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you look at, I think some of our, like, let's take a, a physician named Kate Shanahan, who wrote a great book called Deep Nutrition, which yeah. is my favorite book on nutrition, because it's all about the principles of how human beings and what we've eaten culturally and how those things have stuck. And she, she goes around the world and she's like, wow, everyone eats fermented foods. Everyone, everyone eats fermented food. You might drink fermented mare's milk because you're into horse milk and that's your thing. I might eat kimchi, 
right? Someone else might eat sauerkraut. Someone has yogurt skier in Iceland, but there's a fermented food in everyone's diet. Is there a fermented food in your diet? Yes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly you realize, wow, every culture that eats meat cooks the meat on the bone and eats everything. They eat the, the connective tissue, they eat the skin, they eat the organs, they eat the offal, they eat the bone marrow. Uh -huh. So that sashimi chicken breast you got at Whole Foods, that's not really what we're talking about. Like you didn't cook that, you didn't get all the minerals from the bones, you didn't make stews. And suddenly you're like, whoa, well, that has implications because if you don't get any collagen because you're, you know, you're, you've, someone has told you that being a vegan is a way for health, mm -hmm. not a choice around morality, which is a great reason to be a vegan. But suddenly you just, you don't have some of the basic nascent building blocks of what it takes to be a human being. And it turns out every culture cooks meat on the bone, eats meat. So suddenly you're like, oh, okay, well, by extension, you're saying that every culture eats lots of different kinds of fruits and vegetables seasonally, and they maybe have 20 to 30 varieties in their diet, and the average American has four. So we start to realize in that situation- Nutritionally. Nutritionally, at this one piece, that there are these fundamentals- and those come out of our cultural understanding. Look at the martial arts. Do you think Pilates was messing around? Do you think Iyengar didn't understand what was happening? Like breathing is very popular in strength and conditioning right now. It's, it's like adopted. And we've seen Butraco, Oxygen Advantage, Brian McKenzie, Wim Hof, right? All of these experts, Laird Hamilton, XPT. Iyengar was like, hey, nerves are king of the breath. <laughs> you know, breath is king of the brain. Uh, whoa, 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 right? You know what I mean? Suddenly we're realizing that people have been thinking about this forever. I just saw recently, I, I don't remember who was saying, someone was like, when do we think we became culturally aware and like a civilized society? And I think this physician said, and I don't know who it was, but said, when we saw healthcare begin, when human beings started caring for other human beings and we had proof in the fossil record that people were like, oh, you know, they were trying to take care of, they had to care for older people. Like that's a huge resource driver. It means that we suddenly realized that we're on this planet with each other. And I just saw something that they had done. They, they found a fossilized skeleton that had undergone an amputation that's 30,000 years old. It means, and it blew everyone's mind because they were like, we weren't sophisticated enough to do surgery because we didn't understand the body 30,000 years ago. And I'm like, hey, two and a half million years of evolution here. We are not the first people to think about having less pain, managing psycho-emotional community interactions. The problem is we have right-shifted, uprated all of the stresses and the way we live and the way we interact and how we, we don't get light. You sit all day, you're in a cave. Like this is weird. No one stayed in their cave all day long sitting. Like, you know, the, if you look at the chair, for example, Great. the chair is a relatively new intervention that came out of really like medieval Europe where the, the scion sat higher than the, than the serfs as a matter of status. And everyone's like, well, I can have a chair. I'm gonna make it, I want a chair. Prior to that, we all sat on the floor, we toileted on the ground, we slept on the ground, everything's on the ground. And if you just look at yourself and you're like, well, I don't really get on the ground. I haven't been on the ground since Vietnam, since well, I guess I got on the ground in Korea, I guess maybe, you know, like we don't sit on the ground, we don't get up and off the ground. So it turns out that your ability to get up and off the ground effectively is a nice predictor of your mortality. Isn't that interesting? Because you don't have range of motion, you're likely to fall, or you could just sit on the ground. Isn't that amazing? Watch TV on your ground. So that's what we're trying to get back to, not arguing about who's special program gets the shreddedest abs or <laughs> allows you to lift the most weight off the ground. I think that's real misplaced precision. But if you look at, for example, the Prussians, Prussian military history, 
they really obsessed about, well, our soldiers can only march this far when it's this hot and under these loads. So what I'm telling you is that human beings have been fighting other human beings. We've been interested in how strong other human beings. We have worked this out over and over and over again. If we can go back into some of our cultural um, historical experiences and really understand what was happening in modern dance or an African dance and why things, you know, came to be and take that view on it, then there's a lot there for us to mine about how to have more healthy self-actualized lives. And it's a little bit easier than we think. Yeah. So I hear you going towards culture and more of a holism and a kind of a perspective that's not just focused on loads and movements, but the context in which we're living our lives. Don't, don't pin me down. I, I, I coach in the Olympics. I love going fast. It is, but I, those things are on the outlier. So I, I want to say that those things are born to me, but it turns out that's not how we transform society. You know why? Cause it hasn't worked. Right. Well, it's it a different, work. it's a different focal point, right? 100%. So one man, woman's individual performance on the field is different than who we are as a society collectively and, and the stresses that we and have. And I have a complicated relationship with professional sports because, Tell me. Yeah. you know, on the simultaneous, I'm like, wow, we're treating people like chattel <laughs> or, you know, like look at the head injuries in the NFL. Look at what's ACL injury rates in kids. We we're like, get a scholarship, get a scholarship, go to scholarship. Oh, by the way, you don't have any health care and you tore your ACL. And you know what I mean? Like you got into school and you became a professional athlete. And, and there's, there's just, we have, we lie about the Olympic experience. You know, we lie about this collegiate experience. We, we, what kind of lies are you talking about? Uh, that everything will be okay, that you'll be self-actualized if you choose this dream, that it's healthy, that you know, you're know you not part of a trillion dollar industry, yeah. right, of entertainment. Yeah. But simultaneously, you know, the 49ers locally bind a lot of people together when they win. You know, I was in Texas yesterday and University of Texas Austin was playing Alabama and the number of people putting on the uniform tribal signia of a college identifying we belong together and having the shared experience. I was like, wow. And I work with football there. I was like, this is super weird. Simultaneously. It's great. All these people belong to each other for like an hour and a half. That's amazing. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's interesting stuff because I think that, um, well, I mean, it's the, it's the gladiator side of society and, and, and who gets sacrificed and what happens to those bodies and those particular people. And as I've been, um, and you're on the pointy end of that stick, (laughs) you're like, hold on, is ultra running really good for you? Um, I don't know. It's questionable, right? It is questionable. Um, and, and what good is in different ways, right. And good in terms of like, uh, I feel purpose or good in terms of what happens to my Achilles tendon in 25 years. And, and mine is not to judge. Look, if you, this is how you, relate in your community and find meaning and common cause and uh, ethos that shapes your life. I'm like, cool, let's do it in the best way we can. There you go. I'm with that. And I, I coming into this conversation, I've just been, I was playing uh, old man soccer over 50 soccer yesterday. Woo. And yeah, yeah, it's great. And not as dangerous as old man pickleball, by the way, which is now the number one, like most dangerous sport middle-aged people can play. Because they were not ready to load their body <laughs> and cut. direction yeah, and move fast. Right. Yeah, but yeah. it's pickleball. It's not tennis. It's safer. I'm like, when was the last time you cut laterally for an hour? Oh, you haven't since. Yeah. 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 It's been 10 years. No, no, no. Pickleball is how my wife finished off her ACL. That was a little Uh, bit. See? Oh, okay. I was right in there. Yeah. You know, you just hit on something that, um, if you drop into any community around the world, you'll see that there are pockets of middle-aged older people playing soccer, but they haven't ever stopped. That's right. 
you, they have continued to load and continue to find community. They have like, they have loose associations. You see people, you show up, you get seen, you compete. You, and as a side effect, maybe you get fit and you load and your bones are strong, but they've never stopped playing. The difference is like, Hey, let's go play some basketball on Thanksgiving. Whoo. I guarantee you we're going to find Achilles that, you know, can't take that load or weren't prepared for that. So, um, but just looking around at the assorted bodies, you know, of men over 50 and, and, and even just coming in here today to meet you here at the ready state and, um, just looking, feeling compassion for bodies, feeling compassion for, you know, what different bodies have to deal with and the limitations and the kind of certain pains, you know, body keeps the score. Everyone's, Everyone's body is a snapshot of all of their experiences, trauma, family history, genetic history, Perry, like, Genetics just in the womb, the perinatal conditioning. You're just seeing like who you are. Who taught you to eat? Who taught you to self-soothe? How are you coping? We saw in the pandemic that alcoholism went through the roof, drug abuse went through the roof, depression sure. went through the roof. Why? Because people were trying to cope and they didn't, we hadn't ever trans prepared society to handle these kinds of stress loads. Yeah. So that was a certain kind of stress load, the pandemic, right? Do you have observations on that? Well, yeah, we failed as a fitness training health community. If the test is we're trying to transform community, not sell people stuff, well, then we put the greatest stressor than my generation. You know, World War II is probably bigger and, you know, polio was gnarlier and mm-hmm. the Spanish flu was gnarlier, World War One. But in our generation, what we saw is that we had people who were poorly prepared, people who are just getting by because their body is so tolerant. So what you're saying is, wow, look at all these different bodies and the different ways people are coping. And when you take that, it's a very dispassionate view where suddenly you're trying to see pattern recognition and understand and this person in front of you is a collection of experiences and training and history. And, you know, and what you realize is, well, there's a lot of roads lead to Rome and we won. And two, we really didn't do a good job. I mean, there's pictures of people on the beach in the fifties, you know, they look very different than people on the beach today. That's true. I want to come to this idea of compassion a little bit more and kind of understanding the challenges and and maybe the failures of the pandemic but I'm also thinking about how to use a phrase like awakening to the body, mm. right? Like there's, there's a certain kind of um, uh, getting out of the distortions or the kind of the cultural, the thin cultural memes of what is fitness or, or what is health or what is life or what is purpose and really deepening into this amazing two and a half million year old animal being that we all are and trying to, you know, find vitality, try to awaken to that. And I think to me, when I look around, part of that is that I don't think that transmission is really there. The transmission is more on object results and less on people building a deep connection of what they need in their bodies and why that feels good and and how that can thrive. And I do see there's a, a movement towards that in the broader, you know, paleo kind of idea that, Hey, our ancestral bodies actually need something here that we need to attend to. And when we do, it feels good. Right. And so movement seems to be like at the center of that. Yeah. And, and, and so how do we awaken people to movement and the value of movement and the value of vitality for stress or to stress ourselves? Yeah. You know, you hit on a lot of things there. One is how would you define success? 
What does winning look like? Do you win your health? Do you ever like nailed it? Now I'm just going to retire with my trophy. You know, on that Tuesday in September, I had a perfect abs on Instagram and I got all the <laughs> likes and then I just retired. Yeah, you know? yeah, I know. I had a moment like that when I, w- I, w- I w- did a paleo diet and I got super fit and I'm like, okay, I think this is as good as my abs are ever going to get. Is a, this is it. I won. Wife, well, take good. a look, take a look. This is as good as it's ever going to get. And then let's move on. Um, I really like George Hebert was this movement. He created this move, this ideology of natural movement right before World War One, I, I think. He said fitness was being useful. Yeah. And I really like that. Uh, uh-huh. More and more people have, maybe it was Feldenkrais or someone else defined it as like fitness as realizing sort of the, the dreams of your psyche and your body of like being able to manifest those dreams. Uh-huh. So like that's really a, just. That's a beautiful image. Super cool. Yeah. I think we confuse body composition with I want to be, you know, if I look a certain aesthetic way, because a lot of people don't know how to measure other than, well, it looks, that looks like a car. I'm like, that car has a uh, VW engine, you know, but it's super sexy on the outside. (laughs) And again, um, one of the problems with being human is that it's difficult for us to keep this long-term project in mind. Uh, If you look what's happening in Mississippi in the water crisis right now, those systems were built a hundred years ago and they worked and they worked just fine. Worked well enough. We Oh, yeah, those gauges broken, UV lights out. Sometimes we get stressed. And then what we realize is that the systems needed a lot of input. But they, why would we do that now when I can give this tax break to a big corporation or I can spend this money somewhere else or a new stadium? And Not it, sexy. It's not, not sexy. sexy. And, yeah. it's, and it's hard to do the work. And we have to, I think, always be thinking about how do we constrain the system how do we constrain our environment so we do the right thing without having to think about it? Because then you don't, it's not another choice, another act of will. Don't put like for me, for example, I love cookies. I love cookies. And if I have cookies in the house, I will, no one will You'll love them to death. No one is safe until the cookies are gone. <laughs> and this is a problem because my daughter, Georgia has recently started a subscription cookie business, a national subscription cookie business. Talk about a test. There are, <laughs> 250 snickerdoodles, gourmet snickerdoodles made with eight and a half pounds of butter on my house right now. Ooh. And I literally am like, well, those aren't mine. She has notes on them that was like, you can't eat these. Dad, stay away. I have the same amount. <laughs> but as an example, if I don't have cookies, then I don't eat cookies, right? If I think to myself, I'm going to watch TV because I, I love TV. We're in the golden age of broadcast TV right now. And I'm like, well, I'll just sit on the floor. And then, oh, look, there's my roller. So I suddenly... I can think about constraining the environment so that I automatically do the thing because the, if we don't think in those terms, it's really impossible for us to think what the outcomes of our bodies and our health is for a hundred years because we are so tolerant and so robust. One of my friends said best, he's like human beings, we are really good just at two things. He's like, we can out hunger almost any other animal on the planet. You can like not eat for a long time. And it's pretty amazing. We're really good at starving and being hungry and really good at reproducing. And all of those things are in, ser- in service of, like community is in service of, like, can I manage these resources? Can I reproduce? And d- how could you think about what your life is going to look like when you're 70 or 80? And this is what we, we actually do this with a lot of people. It's like, what do you imagine? What does is, what is your health look like when you're 100? So let's work backwards from there, yeah. right? Hey, I want to be able to play with my kids. I want to put my, I want to be able to put my arms up in the security thing, put my, my, you know, suitcase in the get overhead. Get in and out of the bed. Get in and out of the bed. 
So what do I need to do today to manage that and keep that? Otherwise I have to wait till I break my hip and then go through that whole system and, and then learn how to do with care and feeding. So simultaneously, that's why I'm, I'm, if we can create these fundamental habits that are about minimum input, what is required for a system to be, it's then we can add in sexiness and do you look good naked and how much do you want to deadlift? Mm -hmm. But those first things are always in opposition or our behaviors are difficult to imagine because we don't imagine what our lives are going to look like until suddenly I'm almost 50 and boy, I'm like, I'm playing this durability game. How do I be durable? Yeah. Because I'm realizing my body doesn't re respond the way it did when I was 22. Yeah. No, I feel you on the uh, kind of awareness that comes along. I just turned 50 last year and I feel the awareness that comes along. It's with, different. It's different. The perspective is different. There's enough data there to kind of see trend and see and easier to see, imagine what older age is going to be like. And the problem for a lot of folks are we, we hit this 50 and you're and you're and some some of this is now you're confronting the eight year aging parents. Yeah. And what that looks like and the choices they've made. So you're seeing an experiment of inputs and outputs. Yes. And you're like, okay, maybe yes. you can't drink a bottle of wine every yes. night. And then simultaneously, um, you have these children who maybe you may or may not have children and you get to see what they are capable of. And you're really confronted with, holy moly, the problem is that you need to build a lot of bone density in your 20s. It's hard to be 50 and suddenly be like, oh, yeah. surprise, you are, you know, osteopenic and you don't have any bone density and you don't have any muscle mass. Boy, it's a lot harder to do this when the machinery isn't just dialed to 10 all the time. Yeah, there's set points, right? There's certain set and developmental points that are critical. I want to come back to this idea of helping people awaken to their responsibility with their bodies and the kind of load that we want to have in our bodies. And you were talking about you, one of the ways that you manage your cookie relationship or you're watching TV and things that you do that you constrain your environment that actually promote loading your body in various ways. Am I hearing you right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, an example is look at how kids learn skills. They learn it through play. And if you want to teach someone something, turn into a game really like, and you know, for adults, the key is repetition. The key to adult learning is repetition. So now, you know, my doctoral work was looking at barriers to adherence. What keeps people from doing what they say they're going to do. And it yeah. turns out People know what they need to do, but the environment just defeats them or the, the momentum defeats them or yeah. I don't have time or so for example, I'm like, well, I'm going to get fit. I'm going to go to the gym. Oh, really? You're going to just drive 20 minutes to the gym and sit in the traffic. And you know, when are you going to make dinner and when are you going to go shop and when are you going to do pills and when are you going to chill and when are you going to see your friends? So I'm like, you know what you could do? You could have a kettlebell in your kitchen, right? You need to learn how to take care of the, some of the care and feeding in a way that you can manage it into your lives. For example, that's, I think that's an, an example of uh, getting closer to, well, Hey, one of the things that we do a lot is say, okay, let's, let's use the day as a building block. So we have this 24 hour duty cycle window. So duty cycle, duty cycle. It's like what? a duty cycle. Like, uh, you know, the, the machine switches on and off and on and off and on and off. So we have this natural, yeah. not like duty, diurnal, <laughs> diurnal that's rhythm. Right, that's right. Yeah. We have this rhythm. And it's, by the way, the, the day is my favorite thing about life. It's, I love the day and I'm learning to love the day in a whole new way at this place in my life. And it's, it's helped me in so many different ways because I, 
I, I see each day as a, a singular whole at which, right. at which I get to engage in. And it's the most natural rhythm that we have. And when I, instead of focusing on the moment or the hour, I'd focus on the, the unity. There's of a lot the, of space in that. There's a lot of space for variability, but also achievement. That's right. You know, and then you get a chance to do it tomorrow better or different. <laughs> yeah. And you just get to keep playing over and over again. So here's an example. Juliet and I, uh, your fought, wife, Juliet, yeah, your wife, our CEO, Juliet, my wife, who's a three-time world champion, superstar. Um, we play the 800 gram day every game every day. We try to eat 800 grams of fruits and vegetables every day. Wow. 1.7 pounds. And that means we get enough fiber. We get enough micronutrients. Yeah. yeah. We get enough variety. Uh-huh. And guess what happens? I'm also, there's no room for crap because I'm like, oh, this pound of cherries I have to eat is 2.230 calories. I'm like, oh, wow. So I have caloric <laughs> density control in there. It's all built in there. Mm-hmm. And what I'm telling you to do is eat another banana, eat another apple, eat some more vegetables, yeah. eat some more fruit. Even bananas, I mean, they're not really rich in fiber. Do you, do you, how do you feel about the glucose on bananas? Oh, see, what we've done is we've just told people that whole foods of fruits and vegetables are dangerous. How do you yeah. feel about... No, I eat banana every, almost every you, day. You pull a 400 or 600 pound person out of their house and you know, TV show and all the bananas and apple cores just fall off them. That doesn't happen. Like, stop it. <laughs> Thank, you. So, Thank you. So, uh, I tell it, here's the deal. Uh, you don't want to eat bananas cause you're afraid of bananas. So cool. I'll eat the bananas. You can eat the rutabaga and the broccoli and yeah. right. And the grapes and the, I see fiber as the fourth macronutrient. I think that's really great. Yeah. I think it's the, it's so essential. And one of my favorite studies, I forget, I'm not good at remembering studies, but is, Disease comes not by eating the things we're not supposed to, but by not eating the things we're supposed to. Yeah. And that is always such a good reminder for me when people are guilt tripping themselves about what you shouldn't be doing. It's like, yeah, that's not as big a deal as are you doing what you need to do? So you have this game you're talking about 800 grams. And it's every day. uh, Every day. And I I played it today. I'm like, woohoo, high five. And that's not that much. Like an Mm -hmm. apple is like 80 or 90 grams of carbohydrate, Uh, 80, 90 grams of weight. Okay. So you, you, all we, you, once you start to weigh and just get an idea, you're like, oh, it's actually not that much fruits and vegetables. So how many say, what, what would be a typical day of the fruits that you would be eating? Well, all right, I've eaten two gigantic handfuls of blueberries and a gigantic banana. Okay. And I polished off the smoothie I made for my girls, which was made with yogurt and peaches yeah. and frozen blueberries. Yeah. And you track your blood sugar and you don't see any kind of challenge with that or what's the sense? A challenge from eating food? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like just in terms of, I mean, it's not processed, right? Processed like juices, you wouldn't go. Juices is not food. Yeah, juices is not not food. It's not not fiber. Where's the fiber? And so what you'll see is you're also like, it's so funny though you mentioned that. Chewing (laughs) is actually hugely important to the system. So too, we see that around other things. So you're like, I'm an elite athlete. Give me an IV of this fluid. Well, it turns out that if I give you an IV your brain doesn't recognize that as you've actually drank anything, you'll still be thirsty. So you're going to be hydrated, but you're still thirsty. Thirst is the, one of the biggest drivers, but it turns out if you, you can give someone fluids by mouth, unless you're unconscious, I give you fluids by mouth. Unless you're having a, a crisis where you're bleeding out and you need to squeeze blood volume into you or plasma volume, the best way thing you can do is to drink. So these fundamental systems are all tightly coupled into these f- essential behaviors. I think it's easy to forget sometimes that if you walk, like for example, your whole lymphatic system is predicated on movement. So your whole sewage system is all done through muscle contraction. So if you want to decongest and you know, your body makes like four liters of lymph a day and in your, in through your lymphatic system, three to four liters, 
that's all done through contraction. So if you don't muscle contract, you don't move your, you don't move the sewers of your body yeah. and that stuff is stagnant or you can call it you congestion. Yeah. Chinese medicine, we call it flam damp. Yeah. 101, you have to move. And so if what you'll find is that it's very interesting that people are like, Hey, you should walk more. Well, what's the essential walk? Is it 7,241 <laughs> steps? I don't know, but it's probably more that you, if you want to fall asleep, yeah. You have to accumulate enough non-exercise activity to actually be fatigued enough to go to sleep. Well, that turns out that's walking. Mm -hmm. And then if you go into like someone like Philip Beach, Muscles and Meridians, human beings were designed to get up and down off the ground, carry resources around, including your baby. Not that that's a resource, but carrying resources and then throwing things. And it's really like, that's it. So you getting into your Tesla and drinking this juice and having this 17,000 calorie. I never see that around here. It is so <laughs> goes against the system. So this diurnal thing means then we can look in your life for a day and I can say, well, where are you going to have some agency? You're a single working mother. Well, it turns out right before your kids get up, we have some control. So maybe we can get you sitting on the ground or doing a, a five minute movement snack or. A, so what a we're, we're going back to adherence here, right? Resi yeah. uh, barriers to inherit. Or, or we're saying simultaneously, where are we going to put these things in? During the day, max out what you can, drink some water. If you're able to eat a protein or fruit and vegetable, you're killing it. In the evening, once your kids have gone to bed or you're in front of the TV, you have some agency again. So let's, let's hone in on those moments we have some agency. And that may mean I need you to go for a 10 minute walk after every meal. That's it. Can you walk 10 minutes after a meal? Yeah, I can do that. Great. Oh, it's so great. Too. That's 30 minutes of walking you just got in today. You don't have time for 30 minutes. I'm going to put a 30 minute walking block in your schedule. You're like, you know, fall, fall off. I don't, I can't do that, but you can walk for 10 minutes. So if you, people see that once we start to show them where there are these windows of really low level, super sustainable movement behaviors, eating behaviors, mm -hmm. care behaviors over the course of rinse, wash, repeat, rinse, wash, repeat. And I, when I say consistency is king, we say be consistent before you're heroic. That's one of our mantras in our Beautiful. model. I love that. I'm not talking about a week of consistency or a month of consistency. I'm talking about decades of doing this low-level, seemingly pinche bullshit that doesn't seem very sexy. Mm -hmm. And I'll see you when we're playing pickleball when we're 90. Literally, it's that simple. Humans are that durable. That's good. You made that point. I really like it. What I hear is you have a practical solution, like, hey, where do you have control in your day? Where do you have a capacity to do a small behavior and make it work effectively? Um, I want to come back because this, this is more of my style and my, my thinking around it. What do you think about the, the importance of people's connection to their body and the kind of sense and the imagination and the, I was called an awakening to the value of the body and who we are as a motivator? I know for me, when I'm in a clear sense of my vitality in my life, I, I'm usually more active and I'm usually moving more and yeah. more, more engaged yeah. in the world in some way. But I also know that when I, when I remember that, that also helps me remember like, yeah, this is important. And so there's a kind of a education about self and education about the body. And I imagine, what do you think about that idea of helping people awaken to who, who they are? However you want to do that that's joining a dance club. That's you go to a bowling league. We have a mountain bike club on rides together on Saturday, all our friends. I think one of the mistakes that we made is we pointed negative for a long time. Don't eat that. It'll give you cancer. Yeah. Don't do that. Your knees will explode Round your back. When you pick something up, skidoosh, right? So don't do this because X, what we like to say is do these things. Oh, you felt better. Huh? 
And people are clever enough to start to make connections that when they do things and they feel better mm-hmm. or they can do things more easily or their life gets better or their body composition change or something they cared about connected, they can join those behaviors very quickly. There's reward centers. I mean, there's a reason why if I eat a cookie at like two in the morning, the next night my brain's like, hey, there's cookies at two in the morning. Right? <laughs> you know I mean, your, your body drives behavior and feeling good. It's a and- Jim Gaffigan moment. <laughs> that low voice of the subconscious That's talking right. to you. Get up. <laughs> Star at. Um, so, you know, one of the things is, is why is it taking so long? What a failure. We failed you. How did we not, how did you not enjoy this thing? Oh, cause you never had pee or pee was terrible. Or you're never in a sport because you're a girl and you were made fun of, or uh, there's a billion reasons to help people understand that it's not about the mind. It is about the mind and body and brain. And all three of those things are tightly connected. And if you want, we just want people to, you know, we're always talking about sort of performance advancement. That's our kind of traditional community. We have a huge book coming out in April called Built to Move, which is all that, which is really about these behaviors of getting to base camp, rewilding of humans. It's not diet and exercise. You don't need another keto book. You don't need another five minute fat burn sculpturing ass, ass blaster. You don't need that anymore. That's not getting us there. So ultimately, though, what we we have to think differently about the problem and what we don't do those of us who are in, again, if I have to give you a grade, you get a D. You may get a D plus because you're actually interacting and you're working hard. You signed your name and they're trying to transform your community. But we're still thinking we need to think more in this sort of hyper locality. How do we transform communities and neighborhoods? How do we transform schools and families? That's the functional unit of measure. And we're not doing a great job of fitness of reaching back and we're just making it more confusing. But if I do this keto Peloton, doesn't that get me what I want to do? You know, and so what we see is that people are adding more complexity and more technology and they're more divorced from their bodies. And I'm not convinced that social media and the internet is necessarily helping. Yeah. And what part of the problem am I? I, you know, make my business because I back up the internet into the people's lives. And I'm like, here's a thing you can do in your house. And I, I'm able to send my kids to college because I, I put out information on the internet. I mean, I realized that like, how do we do both? You know, I'm part of the problem and I'm simultaneously trying to destroy the system. I heard you say that in another podcast. And I think that's a really uh, interesting idea of embodying what's here with a mind towards what could become. And I, I agree with you. I do think, I mean, to me, since I learned the concept of mismatch, it just has really helped me understand so much of yes. why everything is hard or why everything is confusing or why we're suffering the way we are. And I like this idea that you were starting to go towards. And it's it's like, it's like where are the city planners in this conversation of fitness, right? Where's where, the geography? Where's the geography? That's right. You know, these are the, the people who are shaping the structure of life, the developers, right? Like, yeah, that's- Architecture the, is really important. You're, you're absolutely nailing it. You know, if we just said, can't drive your kid to school, there's no driving a kid to school within a mile unless there's an emergency. And then we made walking paths and places where you drop off your kid. Well, then suddenly it would be easier. We, we created a walking school bus in our neighborhood. We all, and we just, and when our kids are in elementary school and people would drop their kids off in the yeah. corner and we had a couple, couple of these things. When we'd walk the mile and a quarter to school 
and people got a chance to walk with their kids to school and interact and kids played and they were prepared and they'd walked a mile yeah. and a parent came up to me and said, dude, this changed my life. I'm like, well, it's cool. You get to hang out with your kid, huh? And they're like, yeah, I'm not pushing my kid out. I'm not having this toxic interaction. Get out of the car and you gave me lunch. Like, and they're like, and I lost 20 pounds. I'm like, uh, you've been walking for three months and you lost 20 pounds. I'm like, what's your secret? I'm like, I want to lose 20 pounds. And uh, that's the kind of thing what you're exactly saying is that if we could reimagine our environment. If we have thumbs yeah. and we can reimagine how you deliver groceries, yeah. can't we also reimagine what a neighborhood looks like or yeah. what playgrounds look like? Or how we experience our environment and what kind of inputs we expose ourselves to. So I want to talk a little bit about mobilization. Great. Because I know that's such a big thing that you do. And um, so when you think about stress and mobilization, what do you think of? Well, it's interesting. Again, we can have multiple bottom lines. So we use, when we're talking about mobilizing tissues, right? The mobilization of the tissue is for what? That's the question. Well, we like to say you kind of mobilize for, for a few reasons. One is it might be I'm super stressed in the, the day and I want I, I can't have you in my life or see a massage therapist or get some acupuncture or have some body work. So I can have some non-threatening input that has a huge parasympathetic response to the tissues. I can just roll around on the ground and feel relaxed. Yeah. And I want to drive that particular parasympathetic response. And it kind of le leaps us back to the beginning of the conversation around where you were at in the sympathetic drive you were dealing with during the early part yeah. of the pandemic. Talk to me about the best knowledge, you know, around the Paris, why we need and how we can access our parasympathetic side. Are, just, yeah. This is a, as a model in sports, we're really good at going zero to 60 warm up. Well, you know, here's my dynamic movement prep. Here's yeah. how I take this caffeine super blast and I'm ready to shred and I've got my optimization workout <laughs> and it's all about zero to 60 and shred and kill and like, heroic. Uh, it's yeah, heroic, it's, yeah, it's heroic. And we like to do that in a lot of things. And even those of you who are super sensitive, new age marine people, you still like to win. And, uh, but we just are really terrible at helping people calm down, yeah. come out of that, rest and digest, interact and it starts with make your house dim in the evening. It starts with yeah. firelight. It starts with, um, I'm so know, for that. I love that. Take a hot bath. How, yeah. Like, you know, if I tell people, for example, I'm like, Oh, I have a hard time going to sleep. Tell me about your sleep routine. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, do you ever have a kid? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, well, what'd you do? And they're like, well, first we read a book and then we took a bath and then we, <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh, so your brain, you set up a set of behaviors where your brain was like, I know what happens next. Now it's the book, then the bath, then the sleep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And people are like, yeah, I was watching Game of Thrones and these dragons were so sick. And I was, wow, and I had this wine. And and I'm like, well, you're maybe giving some mixed inputs here. So like Julian and I really got off of the Kindle. We loved the Kindle because we didn't like all these paperbacks that we we're buying and trying yeah. to hand off. Yeah. But I didn't like reading on a Kindle at night. I just yeah. didn't like it. I, uh -huh. I have an actual, I, I listen to books. I love that. I read books on Kindle, but I also at night, man, I have a good old fashioned book and I'm an incandescent bulb next. And sometimes I'm like, it's so dark and I'm just sleepy and perfect. So we then can start to aggregate a set of behaviors yeah. that like, well, you have some tea and that is part of your routine. And yeah, you know, my wife and I often so will take it, a hot tub. Yeah. I mean, it's just the self-care. It's like the self-love. Well, self it's a gentle. I, yeah. I don't know if that's the right word because okay. self-care makes it sound like I'm not going to take care of you. I'm going to do some self-care. Like that. that's a word that is a trigger to me. Okay. For a reason. I don't have that one, but yeah. But what I think is you are not, you don't know how to downshift. You don't know how to prepare yourself for sleep. You yeah. don't know how to get out of this drive state. And what, for example, one of the things we saw or continue to see in professional sports is the use of THC and cannabis to get out of that huge, I've just played in front of 70,000 people. 
I just like, wow. Oh yeah. And then those athletes oftentimes don't go to bed till four in the morning, five in the morning. Cause they're so amped. Cause we were like gladiator and I survived and wow. Oh, I can imagine. So they get on the bus now and they hit the vape pen uh-huh. and they're all suddenly like, yep. and then they don't go out and drink and they don't go rage. And we're suddenly realizing, and I'm like, maybe I would like you to be able to figure that out without cannabis. Yes or no. We're not cannabis agnostic. Uh, we are cannabis agnostic, but I want you to see that, hey, that's a performance-enhancing drug that this group of players in this moment figured out that I can get on the bus and start to downshift out of that drive. So what are the other behaviors I can engage in? Soft tissue work tends to be a really easy one where you can have a ball and a roller and start to ask yourself, what hurts today? What was stiff today? What what felt achy today? Or doing my movement, what do I want to pay attention to? Or, hey, I feel good, but I haven't talked to my feet for a while. And what we realize is that if even 10 minutes, just 10 minutes of rolling around, I can do contract, relax, gets my nervous system involved. I can start adding breathing behaviors in there. There's a whole lot of things I can do to soup that 10 minutes up where I'm like, no one gets off the massage table or the treatment table and is like, let's go fight. No one does that. This doesn't happen. So we realized that if you do that, not only do we see people sleep better, yeah. We saw that it was a stickier behavior that they could do it more often because it was only 10 minutes in the uh, evening. Mm-hmm. We also saw that they fell asleep faster and stayed asleep more. And they also reported, man, my low back didn't hurt. And right, that thing I've been battling, I stopped battling. And so that for us became a clinically sticky behavior. It wasn't just about athletes. It was like, hey, let's get some input in the system. Is sympathetic tone tied pretty closely to pain? It can be. I think you have to understand that if your brain is perceiving high threat, high drive in the system, that's an easy way to make you more susceptible, make your nervous system more twitchy, you're yeah. more susceptible to pain. So if you're uh, stressed, underrested, inflamed, drinking a bunch of alcohol, I guarantee you that, you know, your brain is going to be all twitchy and freaky if you think, you know, you twist your ankle versus, hey, you're super loved and that person is super cute who's flirting with you. You're not going to feel any pain. Your back pain goes away when all of a sudden you have the moment, of, you know, so we know that that's a component to that. And already we now we just stumbled into this really complex thing is pain. Is pain really a problem? Is pain mean I'm damaged? Does pain mean injury and trauma? Yeah, I heard you say that. I heard you say pain is a, a request for change, not yeah. necessarily injury. It's, it's just information. So what, one of the fun things about training in an environment, an artificial environment, synthetic environment, is that we get to expose you to a lot of pain, right? Yeah. Where you can, one, realize that, hey, I survived and it's fine. And your brain's like, whoa, I, you just set yourself on fire and we're still here. Getting out of comfort zones. Yes. You know, Anna Lemke, did you get her Dopamine Nation download? Yeah, yeah. In terms of just the importance of pain and resetting the dopamine that's system. That's right. That's yeah. right. And one of the things that we want people to understand is your experience of pain, your previous history of exposure to pain, your family, your genetic, all of that matters. But we in the gym, if you came in and all of a sudden your wattage sucked or your poundage sucked or your position sucked, I'm like, dude, you suck today. Why are you sucking? Why are your markers of output, how how we're measuring this objectively, aren't good? And you're like, well, I smashed a bunch of pizza and beer and I'm super stressed. I'm going to fight with my best friend. And you're like, okay, no problem. I'm like, okay. But all of a sudden we, we, as rational humans are like, oh, no wonder. It's okay. Let's just go through the motions today. Hey, good job showing up, right? If that information is my knee hurts, you think, oh my gosh, I've torn my meniscus. I have no ACL. I'm going to have to stop running. You catastrophize. 
But mostly pain is just signaling, just like loss of performance, loss of wattage, loss of poundage, loss of input, loss of force production, loss of peloton points, whatever it is. And when you start to view pain in that direction, it really is, tells us about like heart rate variability, pain. Those are equivalent metrics in our brains. Mm. And I'm talking about chronic pain is a little bit different yeah, because the brain has done some different things around normalizing okay. that. Okay. But common musculoskeletal pain, like when people's back hurts, they are like, I've, you know, you know, people are like, oh, I have, I have rabies. I have gonorrhea <laughs> of the back. I, they catastrophize. The idea here is you should be able to say, well, why is my back hurt? Well, uh -huh. I haven't taken a big breath all day. Uh -huh. I haven't moved. I haven't hydrated. I'm super stressed. Yeah. You know, my hips are tight. Yeah. That's just more information. So let's, there's a whole, that's why these synthetic environments your word is yeah. are so important because it's a living laboratory where yeah. we can touch base with you. And that yeah. can be a yoga class, a Pilates class. It doesn't matter what the class is. And then we can argue then about, well, is that going to get to the Olympics or not? Right. Yeah. Is that right. the best way to right. change your body composition or not? But right. that's not the conversation. No, I'm just suddenly, I'm really appreciating talking with you. This has been so great today in so many ways. Um, it's not just about more deadlifts. It's not about more deadlifts yeah. and, and, you know, being in the, a student of Chinese medicine for the last 30 years of my life, I know that, right? The ancient Chinese knew about the, what kind of relationship with life engenders longevity. And I see you really in that similar kind of conversation of, okay, not just the heroic, super strong capacity, which is amazing, of course, that humans can do that, but more of like, who are we and where do we, and how do we live with our inputs and our environment in a way that stimulates not just vitality, which is important, value of mind, but, but longevity as well. Yeah. You know, and I think you're calling it durability. Well, you know, I, th and I think we've pivoted away from longevity because that just means as long as I'm 200 years old, like a vampire and I biohack my way and I take this resveratrol and, you know, and I get this in like that, that's not really the game. The game uh -huh. is how full of life you want that you know, what's that cliff death where you're like, you and I, well, you know, my wife and I stole a car when we we're a hundred and, you know, <laughs> and then the next day we're dead because we, they found us in our sleep. I mean, that's where that the goal is to live, do what you want as much as you want, as long as you want until you can't. Yeah. And you know, the queen I think was shaking hands with the new prime minister two days before she passed. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, there might've been like strings and stuff holding her up, but like she was up dealing with the new prime minister and then passed. I mean, yeah. that really is a good model for how functional and man, look at the things in her life. I think you just, everyone needs 500 servants. Needs to feel like a queen. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, the, just to sum up our, yeah, but, um, do it. I want sum people to understand yeah. that, you know, we come from a performance background. I work with, we, the ready state. Yes. And I work with, uh, the Niners this year, English national soccer team, the women's Brit or men's uh, men's, uh -huh. the British uh, or the, um, uh, the Brazilian women's soccer team, the yeah. all blacks. I work uh -huh. with the military and everyone is talking about the same thing. Everyone shows me their dirty laundry. And the first thing I say is let's talk about your ancestral health behaviors because that is the foundation off of which we can then take the next conversation. So, the same conversations you and I are having today, I have with them. And for example, with people in the military um, who don't have real sleep problems, the first thing I say is, and we do is we're like, well, you're going to get 15,000 steps today and then we'll see what happens. Yeah. So the ancestral health behaviors, and that ties into the book you have coming out, right? Yeah. Like those are basically building blocks of ancestral health behaviors. That's right. And that's coming out next April? Next April. And uh, we're, I think Julie and I realized that 
we probably couldn't have written this book 10 years ago. We weren't ready. Mm-hmm. We weren't reasonable. You know, we had too much ego involved with going fast and helping people win gold medals. And, and now we're like, this is, this is it. And if, and if we're going to actually, you know, E.O. Wilson said, Hey, the highest calling of science is to transform humanities. And we borrowed that and said, well, the highest calling of sport is to transform community and families. And if we're actually going to consummate the promise of sport, and otherwise it's just entertainment. And I think it could be more than that. Then let's transform society with what we figured out there. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You can support the How Humans Work podcast by sharing the shows with your people, your family, your friends, your community. And you can keep it ad-free by making a donation to our Venmo at HHW underscore pod. I appreciate your support. All music is performed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about our guest, the show, or Jeffrey's work helping people make peace with their human nature, you can go to howhumanswork.us.